My name is Philip Palumbo, and I'm CEO and founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. Welcome to my show, The Palumbo Show, where we will be interviewing some of the most successful business owners and C-suite executives about their journey to success. After 20 years of working for some of the largest Wall Street banks and having the courage to go off my own, I now completely get it. It changes your inner soul because your name is on the door and it gives you a certain level of energy that is unexplainable. I am looking forward to this journey and learning from these self-made business people, their struggles and their successes, and how we can use that to optimize to our fullest potential, how we serve our clients and how we live our lives. Hey, hello everybody. My name is Philip Palumbo. I'm the host of the Palumbo podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs to learn how they got to the top. Today I have with me Ann Gannon of the Largo Group. She has a very successful accounting practice for more than 10 years. So we are, learn- we are looking forward to learning from you, Ann, about taxes, how you, got your- how you started your business, and a lot of great other aspects as well. So looking forward to talking to you. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. All right, great. So Ann, so why don't we start with, tell us about your business. Yes, so the Largo Group specializes in accounting services for business owners. We actually work a lot with hospitality industry, just because that's the hardest of, I feel like, business owners to kind of wrap your head around. Um, But our vision is really to be collaborative, to work with our clients so that they better understand their numbers and are able to be more proactive. So it's uh, completely different than your, you know, busy season approach to accounting, but really designed to, pre-COVID, we were, we were monthly. We were involved every month. We had conversations every month. And for the last years, that's actually transitioned to weekly, to where we're providing our clients something every week that they can really understand exactly what's happening so they can be as proactive as they can be. That's excellent. So where, where were you prior to launching your own firm 10 years ago? So I worked, um, I, I grew up playing competitive golf. I was a professional golfer for a year. I hated it. I hated playing for money. Wow. It was awful, but I love golf. Uh, but in that process, I decided to go back to school for my master's in accounting. I had gone originally my bachelor's was in economics. So I just always loved business mm-hmm. and, you know, it was kind of driving the country, playing golf, listening to CNBC. So I've always been fascinated by entrepreneurs and business owners and creating something. And then when golf didn't work out, I had excellent advice from one of my professors in college who said, go back to your accounting degree. Accounting really is a skill as much as I try to scare you about it in college that anyone can really learn accounting and it's very similar to economics. So with that advice, I went back to school for my accounting degree and ended up at a large public accounting firm in Boston because my husband had been transferred to Boston. And I quickly realized that I was not your typical accountant and just the whole idea of tax season and billable hours, and that was not fun. Um, and really what I was finding stressful is that you're looking at tax returns and you can't help people, that you're seeing a loss. I mean, when I started at our big firm, it was uh, 2008, so it was really at a terrible time for most businesses, and you're seeing these horrible numbers, and you can't call them because then they're going to be billed for your time, and that, to me, was not the reason to go into accounting, and so after, you know, three years, I just, we were going to start a family anyway, so it was a good time to kind of branch out on my own and decide that I wanted to blow up the way accounting works with small business, that it clearly wasn't working and let's find a way to make it work and something that is adding value to the business owner 
as well as making it, you know, easier on the accountant side, since you're not, you know, doing things three months out of the year to try to survive 12, but it's more of this methodical approach. So that's where the large group has started. And um, I think in many ways, we were doing a lot of what we're doing now before COVID, but COVID really, I believe, proved our model because um, we're 90% restaurants and over 95% of our clients survived COVID. And I really believe that it was the constant communication and the weekly approach that we developed with them to be able to make sure that they were pivoting and proactive and doing everything they could right away and not waiting 30 days, which is impossible to do when the world is falling apart. Well, that's really terrific. I'm going to get into the, all those details, but I want to go back to quickly when you were a professional golfer, maybe even before that. So one of the key things in the, for my audience, I want them to know, because everybody has these kind of aha moments. So you talked about business, you had an aha moment watching CMC. How old were you when you realized you wanted to be in business? So I look back now, I don't think I knew at the time, but I look back now that like, even as a little kid, like with my dad, we would drive around and I would pretend that I was like inventing an airline and all my little friends were with the animals were like working in the airline. So I think now that I was, I've always been an entrepreneur, but I don't think I realized that. And I think when you grow up and you try to put yourself in a box, so many entrepreneurs, it's like, oh, okay, I'll just do this. But you don't realize that you have these other passions. So I think I was always drawn to business owners and the idea of creating or, you know, imagining something better or different and then, you know, trying, trying to find a way to solve that problem. And then, so how did you get involved in golf and then becoming a professional golfer? So I grew up, um, my parents, I was born in Pennsylvania and then my parents moved to Florida uh, when I was right before high school. And so in Florida, golf is, you know, a big deal. And it was right at the time of like Tiger Woods, his, he had just gone pro, his dad wrote this book, Trading a Tiger, which any parent that read it then ended up this crazy parent for <laughs> trying to get your kids through the next Tiger. So that was part of it. Um, but then, you know, I always really enjoyed golf because it's, um, on your own. Like I'm very, kind of a loner in a lot of ways. And so right. the idea that you can really go practice and get better, I love that. And I love the analytical parts where you can find your stats and just like, I'm going to work on my putting stat. And oh, look, it gets better if I practice. So there was very much a one-to-one -one relationship. And I've always been a very driven person. So to me, it was the idea of like, oh, I can go be better and rank more. And it just became this sort of thing that evolved through high school and then in college, um, you know, I, I had a couple of good years and it ended up to be something that made sense to try professionally. Wow, that is really cool. So how does somebody go from a handicap of 15 or 20 down to single digits? So a lot of it is mindset, which to me, I never put the correlation between golf mindset and the rest of my life mindset until really COVID. Um, but so much of my life in golf had always been spent on, you have to believe that you're going to make the putt. You know, they talk about Jack Nicholas believed he could make any putt. And if you don't see yourself making the putt, you'll never make the putt, right? And so when you get translate that to the business world, I think there actually are a lot of correlations that we can learn from golf. And that if we don't believe that we're going to shoot 80, we're never going to shoot 80. But same way as if we don't believe we can have five restaurants instead of one restaurant, we're never going to have five restaurants. So I do think so much of golf is mindset as is life. You do. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, you know, I know in, in business, if you don't have the mindset 
that, hey, I'm going to start my own business and here's what I'm going to do with that business. It all does start with a mindset. Um, in golf, I can see that there are times when I'm having a big putt, a big putt for us is like, you know, against a competitor or a friend or whatever. <laughs> but when you know you have to hit this putt, you do get nervous and it's in jittery. <laughs> it's like, and you missed the putt, like, oh my gosh, how did I miss that putt? But yeah. really, it came down to mindset. I think that even if I practice putting, I mean, obviously, if you practice, it's, you're going to get much better, but it really does come to a, come down to a mindset. And like you said, you, did, have you transferred that? Have you transferred what you learned as a professional golfer in terms of mindset, work ethic, grit into your business life? Yes, I think um, definitely on the work ethic side. I never, when I left golf, I never wanted it to be that I was different in any way from my peers. I just wanted to learn a new skill. So um, when I went into my firm, you know, I never really wanted to be like the pro golf. I really wanted to just be the best accountant I could be and really uh, apply your work ethic and, you know, mindset and every day, you know, working hard to that. Um, but I do think that the knowing that you have to work hard is very important. I think a lot of times in business, we don't realize that hard work pays off. You, you look at people and you think, oh, well, they're, you know, so lucky because they have that nice car or they're successful. And you don't realize that they're up at 4 a.m. and, you know, doing all of this stuff and preparing for their day, just like you would in sports. So I do think that that correlates. And a lot of times you see people who have had some athletic background or, or play golf or play sports on the side that you are more aware of the fact that you're preparing every day for that day. So what point did you say, I'm going to, I'm going to launch my own firm and what, we'll, and talk me through what that was like. So a lot of it was just that, um, you know, in the, in, in the corporate world, it's hard to be a mom and be in corporate world, especially right. in public accounting. And so I always wanted to be a mom. And so I thought, you know, I need to find a way to make this work. But I also knew, knowing myself, that I love accounting. I, I just do. That's weird. But I do. I genuinely love what I do. So it's not like I want to go off and not do what I'm doing every day. I just want to find a way to make both work. And so, you know, sort of my husband, I kind of had a couple of years where I could kind of play around with some different ideas. So, you know, I took a couple of my clients that had been with me for a while and just started to ask them questions about if I were to do this differently, you know, what would that look like? What would be meaningful to you? A lot of it was on the reporting side. You know, if I show you this report, is that useful or is that just extra information that really doesn't mean anything? And getting their feedback really started to build some good processes to say, okay, this is every month we're going to not just provide a P&L, but we're going to provide a graph with revenue or look at different categories of your sales or something that really is more tangible to you, the owner, than just a P&L. And that was really, you know, doing that really helped us to really see that there is a need to have not just a bookkeeper and then a tax accountant, but sort of a blend of both to where you have this tax knowledge and CPA knowledge, but you're also blending it with this monthly work that just has to be done anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I see with my own firm, like something what you're saying is really helpful. I mean, what I've always found, found to be challenging for myself personally is like, I'm the shoeshine guy that doesn't shine my own shoes. I'm out there taking care of my clients and making sure financially that they don't have to worry. That's all I constantly think about and make sure of in every step of the way. So for myself, sometimes you do neglect yourself, right? And thank God, you know, I don't have to really worry, but I'm just saying it probably 
can be managed better, but I'm just so worried about everybody else that you forget about yourself. So, so doing what you do in terms of offering your clients what you're saying, which I get it, I can see that I could really help people, which can actually even more importantly, help move them forward because they can see here's where I am today. And you either like it or don't like it, right? And so that helps you understand, okay, I really need to kind of step on the gas pedal even more in order to see that graph to look more kind of where I wanted to be, right? So it's like holding people, it's like holding people to accountable accountability. It makes a it makes a tremendous difference. You talked about um, being methodical in your approach. That's what Largo means, right? Yes. Okay. So when you say methodical, talk me through what you what you mean by that and how important it is as you serve your clients. So really it's the idea of sort of blowing up the way that accountants work with business owners. Because a lot of times the accountant is there to file the tax return at the end of the year and is there for advice periodically if something is really going wrong. But there isn't a routine there for communication. And what I've found is if you have, you know, a set scheduled time that you talk every month, then naturally you're going to come up with things that you want to talk to your accountant about that you maybe would forget by the time you get to your tax planning meeting or tax planning meeting hits on a bad day and you're just oh, I'm busy, right? But if you have these set scheduled times, then you have some great conversations that just come up because this is a time that we're just going to seek. So I think it really is a lot on the collaboration or communication to not look at it as billable hour because to me, I don't, I don't like the idea of billable hour and accounting because to me, the more information I can get about your business now, that's only going to make my tax returns better. So, you know, we obviously want to come up with a relationship that works, but you holding everything until March is not going to work because then there's a hundred other people holding everything until March and it just blows up. But if we can talk periodically and have those same conversations, then it's just going to be a better result for both sides. Yeah, I totally agree. When I lecture, I talk about helping people understand a good CPA versus an okay CPA, right? A good CPA is one that's a tax planner where they look through the windshield. A tax preparer is someone that looks through the rearview mirror where you sit where you sit down with them after the year is over. And at that point, there's nothing that can be done because the year is over. Right. A tax planner, which can make a tremendous difference throughout the year, whatever that means. Like, let's take today, for example, right? Where you have bonds are down, stocks are down. What can you do? You could harvest losses that offsets against gains in the future. How many advisors or professionals are actually advising on clients doing that? You know, very few. I would say it has to be somewhere 5% or less. I don't know factually. Well, I do know factually that 92% of investment people are not planners for their clients. They're just investing their money. So 6.6% of it, to be exact, right, are actually doing performing wealth management on their clients. And it makes a tremendous difference over time because if you all of a sudden, you know, nobody likes losses today, but it's just the way, it's just a reality of investing. But these are things you can do that can make a tremendous difference. I tell people all the time, taxes are so big. Sometimes it's even more important than the investment returns because if you if you figure out or, or analyze someone's situation in the correct manner, I'm talking about estate planning as well. Then you got personal taxes. You kind of take that whole big picture. You could save clients thousands, if not millions of dollars over a lifetime. And that's almost, and you can, and Vanguard did a study on this, that could add return that should be added to the return you're projecting for clients. So for example, if someone's with you for five years, and let's say you've averaged 7% per year from the investment performance, 
But then if you save the client X amount of dollars in taxes throughout that same time frame, yeah, that's part of the, the growth. That's part of growing someone's wealth. That's tremendous. And that's, yeah. you know, I put together a great presentation, which I love to show you, by the way, I think it was 12 ways and strategies to minimize taxes and defer taxes. So I'd love, love to share that with you one day. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. Seriously, I think it would be phenomenal. So it seems like you're taking the approach where you're more of a tax planner, which is really evaluated to your clients. You talked about, now, when you communicate with your clients, you communicate with them, you said monthly on a consistent basis? Yes. So we are involved weekly for the clients that we're doing their you know, bookkeeping work for. So we're involved weekly. The idea is every client receives a weekly report, which really is their last four weeks. So the method behind that is that if you're looking at it every week, by the time we get to the end of the month, we really should be 80% there before we've done any of the monthly close. So that puts the client, you know, that much further ahead because they've already seen the sales for the last four weeks and the cost of goods and all of the other things. So even if there's a few categorization or, you know, whatever it is, you're you're not surprised when you see the month end. And then at the end of the month, it really is more of a check-in on budgeting, a, a lot of tax planning to say, you know, what happened, is there capital expenses? Are there other things that are happening here? But, you know, the month end is really the good check-in for not just what happened this month, but what do we think is happening next month or, you know, for the rest of the year. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrific. So so running your own business, and what advice can you give the people listening to this that they would need to know that would help them? One or two key things to running a successful business. Um, I would think that the biggest thing is to make sure that you're passionate about what you're doing. I think the business owners that I've seen that are successful, um, myself included, I love what I do, but I would think that, I think that is a very good common thread that it's not just what the business can provide financially, although that is important, right. that you genuinely love it and that you have a passion for what you're doing. And then the other thing is I do think that you have to be aware of, just like the star athlete is of you know performing every day, that as an owner, you are performing every day. So again, I work with a lot of restaurants, but if you're walking in with a bad attitude or angry or there's stuff going on in your personal life, that doesn't just affect you, that affects your team. And would you do that if you were going out to even play golf with your friends, right? Probably not. You'd be more aware of like, all right, hey, I'm getting ready to play. I gotta go, I gotta go get ready to play. But how many business owners forget to get ready every day for performing right. as the leader of their team. Right. So I think that's a valuable correlation for owners to see that how much their feelings and, and vision impact their team. And it goes back to them making the putt. If you don't believe the business is successful right now, it's Fair very enough. hard for your team to believe it. Yeah. Love that. It's so true. And that's why as CEO owner, as you are, it's really about painting that vision having that passion and that will go through your employees that'll resonate. And then you know, it's all part of the, it's all part of the journey. It really, really is. So in terms of, in terms of life balance, right? You run a firm, you have a family. So tell me about how you keep a balanced life. And do you keep it balanced? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if any entrepreneur truly has balanced life. I if agree. they do, I think they're, they're just telling you that they do. So I think it's a challenge, 100%. I mean, I think it's 
you know, and I don't think it matters if it's a woman or a man. I think it is just a challenge to have kids and, you know, some sort of life and then also be an entrepreneur. I think the thing is, to be honest with ourselves, is I think the hardest part is checking out, right? I love what I do. So there's times where it's like, I would love to just sit here and finish this and be done with it just because I love what I'm doing right now. And, but I should go home or I have to go to my son's baseball game or whatever it is. So I think being aware of it and not, I think sometimes, you know, media or whatever can kind of tell you this whole like work-life balance thing, which is true. And then if you're not balanced, it can feel like you're the only one, but I think it's just finding what works for you and being honest and making sure that your time is in the right place, of course. But at the end of the day, you know, it's okay to love what you do, but I, I think that you just have to make sure that, you know, you're there for your kids and everything too. So I'm lucky my husband's very supportive and he yep. kind of knows that I'm like the crazy entrepreneur. Yep. Yep. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. Same thing on my end, but being there for your children, I would say definitely is the most important thing. Yeah. Tell me about time management, right? So let's say for example, you, you, you come into the day, you start your day and do you, do you run your day in a way that you know that this hour or two, you're doing this, next two hours or two, two or three hours, you're doing X and so on and so forth? And is that the way you run your day? Yes, definitely. And I would say, you know, the one final thought on the balance thing is I think it's also important to realize the lessons that you're teaching your kids. So I think it's important, like I have a mom of two boys, so I think it's important that they see me out there and I try to talk to them about mindset and you know, even about like their baseball game like do you see it you know and I think that that's important because as much as it is great that we're there we're also the best role models for our kids so it's okay to go you know chase your dreams because eventually you're going to want your kids to chase their dreams and you want to show them that they can so um but going you know back into the day I mean, what I really think is important, and I see a lot of this struggle in business owners that I work with, because you know, I think I'm fortunate, as you probably are, to be able to talk to so many business owners yeah. every day. But I think the hardest thing is to differentiate between the to-do list and moving the business forward. Right. And a lot of times we get so caught up in the to-do list that we forget or we put on pause the moving the business forward. So to me, it's very important. I try to sit down every Sunday and really build out my week to make sure that I'm allocating some time to move the business forward because I know, you know, especially the last few years, that you know, restaurants things are so crazy that it's easy to say, all right, I'll just do that next month. Like I need to get through this to-do list. And then you find yourself not moving your business forward. So I think it's important to really almost have, you know, I try to have a checklist for myself on like, what are the things I need to do to move my business forward, whether it's marketing or, you know, calls with people, whatever that is, and then allocate that time just like you would for the things that you think have to be done in your to-do list. What I found is that you do all that, right? Your day starts and then all of a sudden the day gets ahead of you and the things you were supposed to do gets put off to the next day. And then the week goes by, you look back, and you have your, your list of things, right? As I, as I do. And I look at my list. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, where did this week go? And that just like follows for the next week. But the most yeah. important thing is you, that you're taking care of the most important things. That's the yeah. most important message that I would say. So you work in with restaurants, right? COVID hits, complete disaster for restaurants, unfortunately. Tell me about that, right? Tell me about as they were going through that, how many of them survived? 
Yeah, so it was a crazy time. I was actually at the New York Hospitality Show uh, March 8th, 2020 in the Javits Center with three of our clients. And, you know, within a week, everything was shut down. I and mean, I think that day my son's school had been canceled. I mean, it was just, it was bizarre. Um, but I, and I ended up, my mom is a retired teacher who lives in Florida. So I knew, I mean, this is tax season. It's, I, 90% of my clients have a failing business when they wake up tomorrow. Like I need, this is not going to work out. My kids have no school. Mm-hmm. So, um, I got on a plane on March 15th. And Come on home, mom. I <laughs> so I was very lucky because she ended up doing the school and the virtual yeah. school. And yeah. I spent eight weeks down there just on the phone with every one of my clients just every day trying to figure it out, you know, webinars, whatever I could do. To me, it was very personal. Um, my, I, my dad was an entrepreneur. I grew up as a, with a daughter of an entrepreneur and his business failed when I was in high school and he never got over it. And so oh. to me, to have 90% of the clients who aren't just people that I know, as people I've talked to every week, I've seen their dreams come true. I've seen them build this thing and now it's failing and there's nothing they can do about it. So to me, and our team made a decision right away, like we are going to do everything we can to get this, get them through it. Because unlike the rest of the accounting world that didn't even know what was happening, we knew it exactly what was happening because we had all the information from last week, all of a sudden there's no sales. I mean, it was bizarre. You know, you have accounts payable that you still have to pay. People don't realize most restaurants had a full payroll to get through and the government funding didn't come for five or six weeks. I mean, it right. was crazy the first six weeks but I think what happened is it made business owners more aware of their numbers than they've ever been before I mean there's some in the industry that are saying you know that said it was rightly so amateur hours over you have to know exactly what it is that makes your business survive you have to be willing to pivot I mean, we had some, you know, fine dining restaurants in downtown Philly that are like, all right, if you want chicken fingers, let's go. Chicken fingers and pretzels, like whatever I need to do, I'm going to do because this is important to me. And to me, you know, there were a lot of people out there at the time that were kind of saying close or just, you know, put your business on pause. I was the opposite. And I think, you know, as a finance expert, you would probably agree that this is your largest asset. So you can't just walk away. There are too many things that are tied here that will never be right. Again, you know, you are tied on the lease. You are tied on the debt. I mean, walking away, I think, was not the right decision. I think the businesses that were able to find what the customers wanted, because there were still customers out there, they just were different. And they were able to adapt to third party, and they were able to really listen and provide the food the customers wanted. They were fine. Right. They, they ended up getting some government money and by, you know, two or three months in that they, they were okay. They had tents and one guy was like building a tent in his parking lot. You know? yeah, yeah. Like all of them. I mean, <laughs> right. That's what they were doing. It's amazing. The spirit of the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial spirit, how they were innovative. They had to be innovative. They had no choice. They figured it out. I mean, not everybody figured it out, unfortunately. Right. But uh, those who did, you know, they, they pushed hard and they just figured it out and made things work and, had to do what they had to do. I think the PPE money was was extremely important, right, to their success and continuing in business. And fortunately, are they in a better situation today? I mean, with uh, to be honest, there's a lot that believe that this year is harder than COVID. Why? Because of inflation. It's uh, uh, it's really bad uh, for. And again, we're kind of on the front lines, and you'll probably hear this six months from now. But most 
business owners that I talk to think that this year is worse. So are there, are there, are there, is their revenue the same as it was prior to COVID? Most are back revenue-wise, yes. Their, their input costs are the problem. Because fundamentally, and this is where I think the amateur hour is over is so true, because you, you have such a different labor now than you did in 2019. I mean, pre-COVID, the idea was, you know, in restaurants, 55% between your labor and your food costs. But most people could have a labor percentage of 25 to 30%. You have servers that are paid mostly with tips. You have some back of the house guys that are paid a little more, but you could make it work. But now the wage increase is so significant that looking at 19, it's not even worthwhile to do because it's such a different labor and labor is such a big cost for most restaurants. And then inflation, I mean, the cost of goods has gone up so significantly in the proteins, the chicken, the wings, you know, steaks. I mean, it's Everything. incredible. And, you know, unfortunately, last year, there no one really cared. You had such been up demand that you could raise your price and customers didn't really care. But this year, you're starting to see customers that do care. And so all of a sudden, the margin has just gone away to where your sales might be okay. But the bottom line, you're lucky if it's a third of what it was before. Really? So you're saying before COVID, let's say revenues even Stephen, but their profits are fifty percent of what it was. If so if you were, if they, so, wow. So if they were doing a million in revenue before profits were one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars, now it's something like fifty or seventy-five thousand. If they're lucky. So how because is it not possible? just have. That's the question. There's a lot of there's a lot of people who save the government money, so they're still, you know. But paper products have tripled um, to go. You know, I mean, every cost when you go down their operating expenses has gone up. You know, twenty percent minimum. So, Ann, do do you believe, in your opinion, that a recession will happen as a result of what's going on in the next six to nine months? Would you be surprised? I mean, I've heard. <laughs> My smartest clients believe that it is, so that scares me because they're usually right. Um, but no, I mean, I think two things that are interesting is I do think you still have a lot of offensive demand. So the customers that we deal with, a lot of them have, say, event spaces or people that couldn't have weddings. You know, they're not seeing people balk at higher prices yet because those people have waited two years to have a wedding. Right, right. So I do believe there's an element of offensive demand. I think what is interesting, and anyone who went through 08, you know, you, you definitely felt when things started to shift. But I think the difference here, especially in hospitality, is people don't want to go eat at home. They've been eating at home for two years. Right, right. So that is my glimmer of hope. And you'll know I'm a very optimistic well, person. Yep. But that's my hope, right? They, they're going to find a way to go out. So to me, it's about, to me, this is the year of revenue. That if your customers want tapas and happy hour, that you're going to have to find a way provide value on your top line to get the revenue up to make your expenses work. Because I think the one lesson of COVID to all hospitality is rent doesn't stop. You know, those fixed expenses don't stop. So you have to find a way to keep people coming in, which is probably more innovative menu, right? They're not going to come eat the same thing twice a week if they're on a budget. But if it's something new and it's a special, you know, if you look at what the big chains do, that's what they do. They draw you in McDonald's has a shamrock shake, right? It's not a burger because they want you to come in March and drink a shamrock shake. So you're right. going to have to do that right. to get your customer 
in the game. Otherwise, that's not going to happen. You're going to have to be creative. I would say I do. I am predicting a recession. And the only thing that's going to, I think, push the recession out is this pent up demand that you're getting only because of people been locked up for two years. And now they're coming out and spending money in restaurants and travel and um, other leisurely activities. So they're spending money on, on services where in, during COVID, they were spending money on durable goods and non-durable goods. And that's now dissipated. And that's why Target's complaining about excess inventory. But now, like you said, you know, there's this pent up demand that's coming with services. The question is, is how long is that going to last until the consumer says, you know, they start tapping out and say, all right, I'm good. I fulfilled what I lost out on the past two years. That's more of the question because, you know, what drives an economy is the consumer. So that's the question that I think is hard to really answer. And I think that's a lot of predictions about a recession coming as I am as well. I think the only part that's the, you know, that throws a, um, that, that makes it challenging to make that prediction is just how long this pent up demand is going to, is going to occur as long as COVID dissipates and is not a threat. That's the hard part. I mean, it's good. You know, so let's, let's, let's get the pent up demand to go and let's take advantage of it. You know, but, uh, but there are so many imbalances that need to be balanced. And that's the problem with the economy today. That's the big problem. And one of the ways to kind of quote unquote, save some of these restaurants and these input costs is you kind of have to destruct demand, put us into a recession, create that balance again, because restaurants and other businesses can't keep going with these input costs and these wage increases that we're seeing. It's just not something that is durable. And that's, that's the problem and the struggle that needs to be corrected. And unfortunately, the only way to do that, in my view, is, is really to destruct demand. Yeah. No, I would agree. I mean, the thing, I, the thing is, I think as business owners in COVID, you saw that you have to be the ones that are moving the needle forward every day, right? You can't be the ones sitting back and waiting for the tides to shift. So right. I believe if you're a restaurant owner and you are being proactive, you're going to be the one that survives. And if anything, what a lot of them saw, the reason 21 was so good, our clients had banner years in 21. And I think that's because in their town, in their local area, they were the one that survived. We have clients that say, we're the only restaurant left in our rural area in Wisconsin. We're it. You know, it's us at this terrible pizza place. So <laughs> you're having an event, you're going to come to our place. So I do think being aware locally and being aware of the competition that may not survive because the ones that are paying attention are going to really struggle if you don't know what your food costs are now not six months ago but now and so if you are aware that is going to create eventually opportunity and i think if you look back at 08 especially because this feels to be more like 08 than anything more recent that once we got through the panic there was opportunity because there were people that had survived and a lot of people that hadn't. So I think if we can get to that other side as business owners, there will be opportunity for, and then eventually there's going to be people who say, I'm going to go buy a restaurant because I just got laid off from my corporate job. So there will always be this cycle, but I think seeing the ones at the forefront has never been more important. I agree. I agree. Totally agree. That's a really great point. You know, when there, there is destruction, there's opportunity. Um, you know, so uh, it's unfortunate for other situations, obviously. So let's hope that maybe we don't get a recession or it's going to be mild, which I do predict it'll be mild. But but listen, Ann, this was really terrific. It was really helpful for the audience. Uh, great talking to you. We wish you luck in your business and what you're doing going forward. I look forward to continuing to talk to you as well. So good luck and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. This was great. All right. Thank you.